0: In the reading corner today, I'm super excited to be welcoming Jen Campbell, who's a fellow folktale enthusiast, but also incredibly knowledge about the history um, of folktales. And today we're celebrating and talking about her new collection, The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers. Um, it's subtitled And Other Gruesome Tales, as if you needed to know that, because a sister eating her brothers is a pretty gruesome idea. Anyway, first of all, welcome into the reading corner, Jen. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. And what do you mean? I thought that title was cute. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that as we go through. But I'd love to start actually. One of the things that I loved about this collection was that I came across folk tales that I didn't know, particularly those from Asia from Africa. And I'm really interested to know what your selection process was for the book. My selection process? Well, I've always been fascinated with the history
1: of fairy tales in various different forms, uh, in a more academic way in the past five years or so. And before that, just, you know, general interest, Roald Dahl, Angela Carter, Jeanette Winterson, all the usual suspects. But my selection process, it's hard because there are so many tales that I could include. I've been paying particular attention to gruesome tales over the years that I would love to retell someday. And some of those are in here, but some of them are not because when you're collecting so many tales, in this case, 14 together, you don't just want to have all of the really super scary ones together. It's about picking the ebbs and flows, you know, of different themes. Some are particularly scary, some are less scary. So they're in there for a variety of of different reasons. But the first one that I wrote is the title story, which is The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers. And that was the one that really got me thinking about seriously sitting down and, and retelling some really gruesome tales. For not just children, but for adults as well. I get a bit frustrated when we talk about fairy tales in society and they have been sanitized and disney quite a lot that often we can forget, you know, the roots of where those tales come from. And I just want to inject
0: a bit of fear back back
1: into our lives.
0: Why not? Mm. Let's talk about the fear next because you've led us there rather nicely. And as you say, some are darker than others. Yeah, and Bettelheim, who I know has been vilified a little bit in recent years, but One of the things that he did say that chimes with me was that you have to nourish the dark side as well as the light. And I wondered if that's something that you agreed with. I think fairy
1: tales are a very useful psychological tool. Not to be too reductive about it, but that's definitely one of the things that they can be. And I remember having a conversation with my editor, Anna, when I was starting to to write these stories, which was in April 2020. And I said, is this the time when children need to be scared? (laughs) We were in our first lockdown and uh, the world was a very scary place. I was like, here am I, writing terrifying tales for children. But then I was reflecting on it. And actually, I think fairy tales are, are even useful for that Kate Bernheimer gave a talk um, with with a few other folklorists. and as part of that conversation, they talked about how fairy tales and forests in particular are a way of expressing our fears and making them overt and outside of ourselves and and putting them in allegorical terms, you know, wolves and 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 people who bake children into pies and all of that stuff. What are we scared of? How can we manifest that and look at it a- and make it perhaps less scary? Fairy tales are a safe way to do that because we know that it's not real. It's a way to discuss some true fear in perhaps abstract ways and uh, at the same time comfort ourselves, which may sound like a paradoxical thing to say, but I do think it's true.
0: Hmm. One of the things that I appreciated was discovering tales that I did not know, particularly the uh, Korean story Um, your African story, the Nigerian story about the skeleton. These were new to me. Where did you find them?
1: Lots of different old collections of fairy tales. I have an extensive <laughs> collection of fairy tale books and I've discovered various different tales uh over the years. I've researched them um online in book form and there have been uh, cases I suppose of, of tracing things back and back, you know, f- going as far back as possible. Like there is um an original and version, commas version of Beauty and the Beast. It was a novel. Um, and with Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, that is his definitive story, but it takes tropes from other fairy tales. But we can trace things back and try and get closer to what um, uh, tales used to be. But the issue is that most fairy tales were obviously told by word of mouth. It's It's why they were such a great tool to pass on stories because you didn't need to read and write in order to be able to tell them. And then when they were collected and written down, there was a massive filtering process that went on because it was normally men who wrote them down, um, uh, especially in in Europe, and they were normally white men, and they would write down the ones that they identified with the most. And I w- would argue, and so would other folklorists, that that's why we have such a not great representation of women in fairy tales because it wasn't the women who were writing them down. There are some women folklorists who wrote those down, and some of those are being um, rediscovered now, which is which is rather exciting. People like
0: Alison Lurie were kind of reclaiming some of those older stories back in the 1970s and 1980s. And of course, Angela Carter, who you've you've mentioned. One of the things that I really love was your very careful use of language. And again, you write about this in your author's note. For example, your heroines and your heroes, indeed, don't generally get what they wish for by being beautiful they have other talents there was this lovely story I think the Japanese story about the house filled with ghosts and I loved I mean her talent is making tea tell us about that story actually
1: So that particular story is about a woman who um, has a very wealthy family and her father is a successful businessman and therefore lots of businessmen come to the house and they often ask for her hand in marriage and she's just not interested at all and then she meets her father's gardener who she does happen to fall in love with over a period of time and they discuss the world and nature and they really connect but her father won't allow her to marry him because as he says he has no money but um the man is wise and he says well what if I ever had a house with a thousand rooms would you let me marry your daughter then and the man scoffs because he knows that this this kid as he sees him is never going to be able to afford a house like that so so sure whatever but and not to ruin it but there is a plan involved which means that he knows of a house that has a thousand rooms it's just it happens to be haunted (laughs) um and he's not all of the characters in this book or the majority of them are flawed as well um it's not about presenting perfect characters i wanted to have nuance it's hard to have nuance in fairy tales because they are told so matter-of-factly and they are so plot heavy but I wanted to have some nuance, he's not a perfect person, he doesn't tell his wife that this house that he has found is haunted but she… Is very uh, practical and she manages to come up with solutions to to help them and to make peace with this house and she's rewarded for that that hard work Um, and as you say none of the female characters in this book are praised for the way they look or are indeed discussed like their appearance is not really discussed very much at all, and the word beautiful only appears at one point in the text. And when that does appear, it's about a man. It's a difficult balance because I am modernizing these tales in the sense that I want to have greater representation of female characteristics and what women are praised for, and also queer representation and positive representation of disfigurement and disability. But at the same time, they're not necessarily happy stories. Horrible things happen to people. People aren't very nice to each other. It's just that the the way they behave and their niceness or their not niceness is not tied to their gender or the way they look.
0: I think one of the things that I really appreciated in this collection that you do so well is that you carry on that tradition of a society remakes its fairy tales in accordance with the values of the society in which they're being told. But you don't do that thing of parodying and dismissing the fairy tale. You treat it with this uh, respect as well. And I think both of those things really come across in this collection. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, It's a hard balance at
1: least in this collection I did think about you know do I want to set them in the modern day if I'm going to be doing modern day things, is that what I want to do? And I didn't because I like that traditional old school field of storytelling and also I think it's a a redundant thing to say that if you're including the positive representation of queerness and disability that it has to be set in the modern day as, as though those things didn't exist you know and I think that's why as you mentioned that that in the past few well, several decades a lot of female authors and queer authors in particular have been drawn to the retelling of fairy tales genre because they didn't see themselves represented in those stories when they were young and that nostalgia is still there because it's ingrained into our society but we would like some of it too please so that's why I've kept the nostalgia the old feel to it because this is the stuff I wanted to see when I was a kid you know
0: maybe that's a good point at which to mention adam de souza's illustration because he manages to traverse this line between modernizing and traditional as well he does and I should say that I am of course a paradox
1: so whilst they're not set in the modern day I do know that at least in one fairy tale there's a mention of camera lenses so there is the occasional mention of of something that is more modern day than you know the 1800s or whatever, when, when the Grimm's were writing. But it's it's more like a, a timeless feel to it. And I think that Adam really helps with that. I think, I, I just, well, I don't think I know the way that he has illustrated this book is wonderful. I love what he has done. His use of colour, I think, is beautiful. All the lights that he draws in the Japanese fairy tale that we were talking about before, there are different colour lights on the walls. And he's just managed to create this warmth whilst it's still being scary which I think is probably a very hard thing
0: to do yeah definitely I don't want to lose this point uh but you talked about you know representation in the fairy tales and you have a story in here that is not heteronormative either the only story that you use the word beautiful in I believe tell us a little bit about that story
1: I have two stories. The one that you mentioned, there is The Souls Trapped Under the Ocean, which is an Irish folktale and can also be found in Europe as well. And this is about a man who falls in love with a Merman. And the original tale also seemed to suggest this as well. It didn't use the word love, but it was pretty clear that this man adored this Merman, was very infatuated with him and the merman is not not a very nice person. He likes to capture the souls of people to elongate his life. It's tricky because uh, very aware of the trope of the gay person dies at the end, but this is also not a collection of happy love stories, so I did want to keep the ending of that spoiler, of that particular tale, because the man, he loves the merman, but he doesn't agree with his with his practices of killing people, which, you know, is, is fair enough. Um, so he's trying to find a way to stop that happening so that they can coexist, but it doesn't particularly go very well. And stories of mermaids are particularly important in queer folklore, and I use the word folklore in a more cultural sense as well, that transformation of body. In fact, The Little Mermaid, it's argued that Hans Christian Andersen wrote that tale because he was in love with his best friend, Edward Collins. So it was um, a metaphor for falling in love with someone who you could couldn't be with. So that is one of the tales in the book. But there's also another tale which is about a princess who falls in love with a woman. And uh, that one does have a happily ever after. I was going to have a happy relationship in the book. I wanted it to be uh, a queer relationship. was one happy straight relationship and one happy uh, queer relationship in the book.
0: Yeah, there's so many considerations you had to think about as you're putting this together. Uh, I wondered if you'd read, uh, just as a matter of interest, really, whether you read Carrie Franzman and Jonathan Plackett's gender-swapped fairy tales.
1: I have read that, and I found it interesting because they used a the computer algorithm, didn't they, to switch it. And um, they said at the beginning of the, in the introduction of that book, that they use a the computer algorithm to remove human bias. But something that I didn't quite understand with this book, and I don't mean to speak ill of it, I just, I, I it puzzled me for ages and I was thinking about it, is that there was human bias in that book. Because they changed Rapunzel to be a man. Um, but instead of giving him long hair, they gave him a long beard. And I was like, but if you do that, you have changed it. Because you think that a beard is more masculine and that would make more sense for the man. Well, I thought it would have been more interesting perhaps to have him as, as a man with long hair and to look at how we associate femininity with with hair because I think that's a really fascinating thing to do with with Rapunzel um I have alopecia myself so I've lost most of my hair and that's something that does creep up in fairy tales you know in Rapunzel then in The Little Mermaid her sister's sacrifice their hair to the sea witch to try and save her soul at the end and it's seen as the ultimate sacrifice of their femininity because hair is valued so much. So that is something that I wanted to have in one of the fairy tales in this book. So in The Woman in the Glass Mountain which is a a really interesting tale, you can find it in various different cultures but this one specifically I'd based on um, the fairy tale that I'd found knocking around in in Spain uh, which is about a princess who it opens a bit like Sleeping Beauty. Her parents don't invite the evil wizard to come to her christening and he's really annoyed and instead of saying that she will prick her finger on a spinning needle when she's 16 and sleep for 100 years, he takes her hair. He takes her hair away and he says, whoever, when she's older, is brave enough to climb up my mountain and get the hair back will have the princess's hand in marriage and there are a few different versions of this fairy tale and i was really hoping to find one where getting the hair back wasn't really the goal (laughs) but i've yet to find one of those i was like well I'll, i'll write one then so that was what i changed in that tale it still has all the peril it has the adventure of going to get the hair back and whatever but that's not what she particularly wants she values love and connection
0: Fascinating. I wanted to talk a little bit about how fairy tales travel. One of the stories, I'm thinking about the daughter who loved a skeleton. that's the Nigerian story, which you know feels very unfamiliar in lots of ways. But as I was thinking about it, I did wonder whether the skeleton story, had gone on to influence the sort of Caribbean stories about Mr Drybone you know the Anansi and Mr Drybone stories I don't know if you know anything about the way those stories traveled it's
1: really hot most of fairy tale history is speculation on this front because unless someone wrote down and said I read this tale or I heard this particular tale we're never going to know but it is fun to speculate there is a huge catalogue of fairy tales called the arn thompson uther fairy tale index where fairy tales are categorized by type so 290 might be woman eats an apple and falls asleep you know so that would be listing all of the um, fairy tales that falls under Um, but there are fairy tales that exist that are really similar in many ways but can't possibly be related to each other and that's that's where we can have, I think, a more interesting conversation, just because you can disprove that, but you can't prove actual genuine connection. So, for instance, there is a really old version of Cinderella from China, um, which is called Ye Shen, and it is about a young girl who lives in a cave with her stepmother. And her half sister, and instead of going to a ball, she goes to a market fair. And instead of having a fairy godmother, she has a magical fish. Magical fish are very, very important, um, in, in old fairy tales, especially, um, fairy tales from specific parts of Asia. And, um, she leaves behind a feather from her gown when she goes to the ball, well the market fair and then someone finds that and you know eventually finds her and she gets to marry the the man that she wants to marry. So that is a a Chinese version but then there is an even older version of Cinderella and folklorists argue about this all the time which I just find really partly amusing because I just I just love that we really dedicate ourselves to fighting these causes that we're never going to have an answer to. It's great. (laughs) It keeps us occupied. Um, There is an old Egyptian tale, or Greek. It's a Greek tale. It was written down by Herodotus, but it is about an Egyptian uh, woman uh, called Rhodopis. And this is about a woman who was sold into slavery in Egypt, and she was washing her clothes by the Nile. And the story goes that a falcon stole one of her gold slippers and flew away with it, dropped it, a pharaoh found it and thought, I love this slipper, I want to marry whoever wears this slipper. So conducted this huge search and then found Rhodopis, and she got married to the pharaoh. And that is supposed to be real life. A lot of fairy tales are based on what is supposed to have happened, you know, once upon a time, pun intended. Um, But the trade links were not open between Europe and China. So there is absolutely no way that these stories could be in any way related to each other. So... I don't know, I just find it fascinating to think about, but it's something we can never prove.
0: There's another one that would fit within that kind of idea, and that's the Chinese story that you tell, the one about the girl with the horse's head. And that's like an animal bridegroom story, isn't it? There are lots of
1: those, yes. In fact, Penguin Classics brought out a book dedicated to those of animal bride and bridegroom stories, and they're thought to be allegorical, a warning against arranged marriage, you know? So I do find that really interesting. I have to say, (laughs) Adam's illustrations for the, the girl with the horse's head terrify me <laughs> when, when I when I saw that last illustration I was like oh my god I might need to sit down
0: are you talking about the one where she's got the horse's head and everything wrapped around her and then she's in the tree trunk yeah
1: it's very beautiful but it's very eerie is what I mean it's not it's not bloody and gory and all of that stuff but it's just very unsettling it's a very unsettling tale and it is um, supposed to be tied in with folklore to do with um, silkworms and, and silk making but that's not what the plot of the story is about at all
0: I guess the frog prince and the golden ball are similar, but the thing is he has to turn into a prince, whereas that doesn't happen in this story. She turns into oh. the horse. <laughs> There's
1: no get out clause in this one, no.
0: <laughs> Most fairy tales are told with economy because the idea is to, you know, they're, they're very plot centric in, in, in many ways. And the shortest story in your book I absolutely love the Egyptian story. Tell us about that one. That one's a little bit like a bad joke,
1: isn't it? It's just a cruel joke. That I think that was probably what it was told as. Um, and this is one of the things that I mean about keeping the traditional feel of fairy tales in and that sometimes there's going to be not nice things in there. And that is a tale of... Well, it has misogyny in it. It's about a man who doesn't like his wife very much. Um, And there are other discussions of that and other fairy tales where the outcome is much, much better, uh, where the wife gets her revenge and patriarchy uh, can fall on its face for a minute. But um, that particular tale is just a snapshot into a man who really doesn't want to die. I mean, I suppose it is a very short one. I mean, I don't know if you would like me to quickly read it.
0: That'd be brilliant. Let me
1: find it. Okay, yeah. It's called The Husband Who Cheated Death. There was once a man who felt very ill, so he gathered his family and friends around him. "'Dearest wife,' he said, taking her hand, "'will you please put on your wedding dress? Will you wear your silver shoes, and will you put gold in your hair?' "'Of course,' she said, smiling sadly, and she began to do all of these things at once. "'Is this because you want to remember our wedding day before you die?' "'No.' said the husband slyly. It is because they say that death takes the best of us. So I'm hoping he will take you instead. And with that, death appeared and whisked the wife away. I mean, I would like to think that there is a further, you know, story with that, where she comes back to haunt him for all of eternity. I think that that would be nice. We can all imagine that
0: happening. It definitely does in my imagination. And there are quite a few cultures where that you know stories are very short and you know that have that sort of jokey ending um uh and I really like that
1: yeah and I think yeah so you're right there there were lots of fairy tales that were short for that reason or perhaps only part of them got written down um it's interesting how some tales have been shortened or bits of them are remembered the uh Basile version of um, Hansel and Gretel, which is called Ninilo and Ninella, which is collected in Tale of Tales, which is a bit like the Decameron, but for, for fairy tales, has the beginning of Hansel and Gretel that we would recognize, that it's about a sister and a brother who get abandoned in the woods and then they go and they find a gingerbread house and all of that, you know, all the usual. But then after they break free of that, the Gretel character escapes and becomes a pirate and she sails the seas and she makes lots of money And the Hansel character gets eaten by a fish. (laughs) And then then the sister rescues him. And I'm like, wait, I don't remember this bit. This is really interesting. Um, Yeah, so some can be uh, stretched out really far and then some can be really condensed. And sometimes that's because things have been forgotten um, or it may be deliberate as a means to make sure that tales get passed on. It's why they also have repeating elements so that people remember them um, and why certain numbers are important, like three, six and seven. Um, so in Hansel and Gretel, the children normally get left in the woods three times by their parents. And it's only on the third time that they end up getting to the gingerbread house.
0: Well, Jen, it is an absolutely fabulous collection. I feel like I could go deeper and deeper into the forest with you. But unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. What I would like listeners to uh, do is to pop over to your YouTube channel. What do they need to
1: search for to find you? If they just search my name, Jen Campbell, um, I would imagine probably my website is will come up first. And there are links to YouTube on there. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.